0: Well, I said a long time ago when I started the show back in 2003 that I wanted to interview people whose lives were not cleaned up with a nice little bow at the end of it. Because that's all we ever heard in church It's the only people they ever put up on the platform in the interview yep. thing was somebody who used to struggle with this and and then they found Jesus and everything's peachy. And it just, it was a weird messaging. Like it mm-hmm. just, it just, I think it polluted what, what Christianity actually is supposed to be about. Absolutely. As Mike Yaconelli has said in his book, Messy Spirituality, Messy Spirituality is the Christianity most of us live, but few of us admit. So authenticity is all I really give a holy grunt about. In 2004, Kathy Harrington's 26-year-old daughter, Leslie, was murdered in a brutal attack in her home. It was Halloween night when the killer broke in, also taking the life of another of Leslie's housemates. Uh, On November 1st, my sister rang to tell me she'd heard on TV that there'd been a murder in a house on Dorset Street where the girls lived. I wouldn't believe it at first, but then I rang the Napa police, and when they said, We've been waiting for you to call Mrs. Harrington, my heart just dropped. It turned out that after having handed out candy on Halloween night, the girls had gone to bed, but someone had broken into the house and stabbed both Leslie and Adrian. Fortunately, Lauren, whose bedroom was downstairs, was unharmed. The attack on Leslie was so ferocious that the police believed the murderer must have known her. I was in total shock. What do you do when you hear news like that? And so that is kind of the big question I think a lot of parents process, right? I mean, what? how, how would you, how would we all respond if something like this happened to our kid? Joining us is Kathy. Kathy, I, you know, you and I chatted briefly this week, and I know that... Well, in doing the research on what had happened to you, and I, I watched these interviews, and I watched these sort of 2020 shows, investigative journalism, et cetera, and, man, did the media ever s- sensationalize this. And, and, and I know that, well, we talked about it, that left a really bad taste in your mouth, right?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, as, I think as a society, we're always judged by how we um, care for the most vulnerable and when you've just gotten the news that your child has been brutally murdered, the worst uh, news of life, mm-hmm. you're vulnerable. And um so we were shocked by um the media, although I guess I wasn't terribly surprised because at the same time that um this happened, the um Scott Peterson case was in the news. Right. If you remember it. And it was on the news every night. <laughs> And I remember thinking um, when I saw Lacey's mother um, during the sentencing hearing shrieking at Scott, and I thought, please, God, don't let that be me. Um, Hmm. So, yeah, the media exploitation was pretty awful. And after a couple of years of enduring an investigation and for a whole year, them thinking that Leslie was the target... um, we decided we just wanted to avoid a trial, that if we could um, stop that, it would stop the exploitation and that we could actually then begin to um, go about the process of grieving the loss of our beautiful Leslie and to also make meaning.
0: Well, look, I, I, I always feel weird in these sort of interviews because I I don't want it to be sort of voyeuristic at all and I don't want it to be sensationalistic and the thing I start off with every time I do one of these interviews is I I never met your daughter I barely know you so can you help me understand Leslie what did I miss out on by not meeting Leslie? Well, well Leslie
1: was um, a classically trained ballet dancer she graduated from the University of Georgia with a degree in philosophy. She was just one, one class shy of a degree in English. She thought she wanted to be a lawyer, and so after graduation, she was um, was on the seven-year plan at the University of Georgia with her best friend, Amy. And um, so finally, she graduated and decided to work for a lawyer, a law firm, and she ended up hating it. So I was finishing seminary in Berkeley, California. And um, she'd been out to visit and been to the wine country, and so I just suggested she come out and spend the summer uh, getting a job in the at a winery, pouring wine or something, and then maybe take the outside or figure out what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So she ended up, she said, well, if I'm gonna get a job at a winery, I wanna get a job at the best winery. So she got a job at Francis Ford Coppola's winery um, mebom Coppola was what it was called at the time. and um it ended up being this amazing job for her., uh, she just loved it, and she was promoted three times in six months. and she was probably the happiest I've ever seen her and she was a um, she was funny, just beautiful. she when she was a senior in college, she decided to be in the miss South miss uh, Miss South Carolina pageant, but she had to be in a beauty pageant, so she her best friend talked her into it, and she became Miss Williamston, South Carolina when she was such a little town. Her brothers teased her and called her Miss Possum Kingdom
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Theories>. <laughs> Miss Possum King that's beautiful, I love it
1: Miss Possum Kingdom, but you know what what I learned at her. Funeral, you know. The whole time, the family was kind of mortified that she, you know, was a beauty queen. That was not something we raised her to become. She always wanted to get a crown, though. But she, um, she did some work to pass a law in South Carolina called Stephanie's Law. Her platform was uh, child abuse,
2: huh. and uh,
1: so it was kind of like the three strikes your out law. And um, it was uh, Stephanie was a young girl who had been murdered um, by her mother and her mother's boyfriend, and she was chained in a bathroom. And so Leslie raised money to build a cottage called Stephanie's Cottage
2: huh.
1: that that is a home for um, abused children that can, they can live there until they graduate from high school and then go to um, Anderson University for free. So when Leslie died, that's what her brothers did, was to raised money and they built Leslie's cottage. So it was always in my I mean I I didn't know this about her that that she had done this and um, but anyway, she was she was loving and caring and she said to me one time, "Mom, there's um, there's never been a day in my life that I didn't know I was loved." Hmm. And I can't tell you what a comfort that has been to me um, after losing her and then seeing what Good work she's done she did before she died and also just the lives that she touched so many lives she touched in her 26 years she was a beauty um, and she was a beauty queen so the headlines of course uh, were um, the beauty queen and the roommate so that's you know how it became and even after um, they discovered that Leslie wasn't the target. 11 months of an investigation, they continued to exploit her for some reason, because I guess it was just, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why. So I was very frustrated because I couldn't preserve her dignity. Um, That was very difficult for me. Um, It didn't seem fair. That, But, you know, and had we gone to trial, I think, you know, we might have been able to at least... (laughs) educate the the country that Leslie was not she wasn't the um, party girl that she had been made out to be Mm -hmm. that brought the tragedy on you know to that
0: so so why just help clarify for us all please why no trial
1: well so they wanted to encounter the state of California when someone commits two murders and and they can prove that it was premeditated, he was lying in wait. He used a knife. They had DNA evidence. I mean, they did a very good job of collecting the DNA, and so it was a pretty clear death penalty case. So they they were the district attorney, who was a really wonderful, lovely man, um, kept saying to us, you know, it's my decision, it's not your decision, whether or not we seek the death penalty. But I, you know, after watching the Lacey Peterson case be on the news, Nancy Grace every day, um, we just knew we didn't want to go through that. In the state of California at the time, the uh, the number of years someone spent on death row was up to twenty three. So I would have been you know eight years old when somebody stuck a microphone in my face and said, "How does it feel now that you know Eric has been executed?" and you know we didn't I don't believe in the in the death penalty anyway for I didn't I never really um, I didn't in, in my ministry it was never something that I really wanted to throw my weight in there were so many other things and um, I think my focus was in our children how do we how we can how do we change our society we do that by raising healthy children mm-hmm. so but,
0: but your anyway, your son's how many sons do you have? I have two sons. Did they, they both wanted you to go ahead with the death penalty, is that right?
1: Oh yeah, They each one separately took me aside at the funeral and said, don't even think about protesting the death penalty, Mom. Don't even think about it. So so that was a real dilemma for me. And so in, in that, trying to figure out, and feeling really bad about that, I got in touch with Sister Helen Prejean. And she was really, really helpful. And she, she said, of course your sons want the death penalty. And of course they want the ultimate punishment for the murderer of their sister. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. So uh, that made me feel a little better. But she then began to really help me um, see how um, we could do this differently. And that began my journey. You know, she talked to me about the mother of the murderer, the, the brothers who were in, um, in the book Dead Man Walking that she wrote, mm-hmm. and how people had cut up dead animals and thrown them on her porch, and she couldn't even go to the grocery store. I mean, it was like in that instant, um, my heart opened. You know, I didn't realize I had it had been clenched like a fist, and I just, it was like a little bit of light in my darkness. And it kind of illuminated my path for a really long time. And then finally at the, um, sentencing hearing, I actually asked to meet Eric's mother because, you know, it was having compassion for her that really helped, um, me begin to find my own humanity again, because I was just lost. It was like, uh, a nuclear winter. I was, my life was just, I was suffocating into the darkness and, um, so the death penalty holds families hostage. The death penalty is not, um, it's not good justice. The system, it, it, it just compounds the tragedy, and it holds families hostage for decades when, while the murderer becomes the victim, the victim gets lost. Everybody forgets about the victim. And then, um, you know, you wait and you wait and you wait, and, you wait and you're, you're held in trauma space. And what trauma space looks like is, you know, your amygdala is, you're in fear all the time. You aren't able to um, really function. Your frontal lobe shut down, and that's where our humanity lies. So it was really essential for us um, to be able to have a plea uh, agreement um, We were really clear we didn't want... Um, Eric to be able to file appeals we wanted to be finished so um, that's kind of how it ended for that that part of it and then the rest the journey really then
0: began for me I I can only imagine that in your position you must have battled uh, strongly with the wise like what kind of obsession happens with the whys, why did this happen? Why did Eric do this? Why my daughter? Why? And then tying also into, is there a God? And why does this? I don't. You know the the whys. I would imagine the whys must have uh, paralyzed you a little bit. Yes or no?
1: Oh sure. Um, you know, I was. I never really got angry at Eric. I was really just too broken hearted. Um and being a, having just finished seminary, you know, I I kind of understood the why's. I really I began to um want to know why how our country had gotten to this place and I started to recognize that you know, we we've kind of gotten to where we've turned murder into entertainment. Hmm. So I started doing I started doing research about that. Um and research says that a 12-year-old child in our country has seen over 8,000 murders on TV and more than 100,000 acts of violence.
0: Say that again, please.
1: (laughs) Katie Weingarten wrote a book called Common Shock, and she said, a 12-year-old in our country has seen over 8,000 murders on television and more than 100,000 acts of violence. She says, by then, he just zoned out. It rolls off like Teflon. So this is what I started trying to understand. How did this happen? And then I started recognizing hope. I took, um, I started studying restorative justice. Um, I read a book called um, From Violence to Blessing by Vern Redekop. He's a Canadian. You should be very proud of Vern Redekop. Yeah. And he he suggests that if systemic structural violence exists in our society, then systemic structural blessing is also possible. So I started to wonder what would it have looked like the first forty-eight hours. What would they have looked like after Leslie was murdered if there had been a compassionate response?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was what would that look like if everybody who was considered important got the care they needed, like the family, the notification of the family, and also the. Of course, we didn't know who the murderer was, but also the murderer's families—they're kind of the hidden victim. What about the first responders? What if? And I think I learned later that in in England, in London, they have specific police officers that move into your home after a violent a murder, and they deal with the media. You know, my mother had to move out of her house because it was on the Internet before we even knew. Um, and um, they were the media were calling her. They knew her address. They didn't know my address. Because right. I had just moved to Michigan to start my first church hmm. in Michigan.
0: Uh, now, hold on. Let me um, just add some context here. Kathy is a Unitarian Universalist minister, and so she's talked about, you know, being— seminary and, uh, and and her ministry and, and her first church that's the background context of all of this so let me let me just ask you kathy being a unitarian Universalist minister how did what how does that play into your understanding of of what role God might play in all of this
1: oh good question um you know I I was I sort of think that you're Asking me to be on the show was kind of a gift of grace. I talked to you about grace, not necessarily that I believe in God. Uh-huh. I think mean, God is such a uh, difficult word because um, it's just been so overused, and it means so many different things to so many people.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So I would say I don't believe in a God of being a guy in the sky with kneecaps. <laughs> uh-huh. But I believe in, but I know what I experienced, and that was grace.
2: Hmm.
1: And first it was grace in the way of a form of family and friends. There was a lot of ungrace, a lot of stuff that happened that shouldn't have happened, um, including Leslie getting murdered. But um, but every step of the way, once I made up my mind that I was going to walk that journey um, of hope, that there was grace. And I don't know how to explain
0: it, Billy. Um, well, let me let me follow that up with, if if you weren't a Unitarian Universalist minister, you might believe in the anthropomorphization, which is the hardest word to say ever. The anthropomorphization <laughs> of God, in other words, a God with kneecaps. I think you just said, which was so cool. Um, you, you, and then you you might then have an object for your wrath. To go towards, so by not having that that anthropomorphized God, you then really have no nowhere to throw your anger or your wrath, or nowhere to blame. I guess is 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 what we're saying. How, what does yeah. that? How does that sit with you?
1: Well, I first, I think I displaced anger. I displaced anger against the media for quite a while. Okay, um, not a displaced anger. Um, but, no, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. I think, you know, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of research, and I I love the Jewish tradition. And, you know, when they said, where was God, when they, I, th- I think there was a story um, Ellie Rizzo wrote about a child that the Nazis had hung this child. He was hanging there dying, and one of the men standing there said, where is God? God? I think it was a play, he wrote The Trial of God or something, oh, and... Oh. And and the man the man next to him said God is right there hanging hanging on that noose. That's where God is. And so, I mean, I really believe that. I think if we are, I think that God is in us and we are in God. If there's, you know, if you want to use the word God, and that every time one of us dies, a a part of God dies. But whenever one of us has hope, then God is resurrected in a way.
0: Okay, uh, we we have got to talk about the F word here. Okay. I mean, what have you done about forgiveness? People have probably thrown that word at you, and you've also then had to look at that word and process it. And I don't even know if me asking you the question is, is fair, you know?
1: Yeah, it's okay. Uh, well, first I'd say, you know, I think that's one of the ways we do violence to survivors, uh, one of the ways first ways is, you know, can you just move on? Shouldn't you be over that? Shouldn't you just forgive and move on? And and so, and I think part part of that is people's discomfort with, you know, hearing about it and, and the denial they use to protect their own sense of safety. You know, I think that one of the problems that I had when Leslie was murdered was how many people wanted to kind of blame her, you know she must have done something to make this happen. You know those of us, those other folks who had beautiful daughters wanted to be sure their daughters would be safe as long as they followed the rules. Mm. Well, Leslie was a completely innocent victim here; she hadn't done anything to deserve that so but it's human nature you know when someone gets lung cancer, the first thing we say is, "Did she smoke?"
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you know. So I think that that's human nature for us to want to just move on. But forgiveness, you know, I really have done research. I read the book The Sunflower three times. I went to Auschwitz with Bernie Glassman, a Zen Buddhist, and for five days we, we chanted and, and sat on the selection site. And in the book The Sunflower, you know, they debate about forgiveness. And I, I don't know. I don't know. But I remember when, after, shortly after Leslie was murdered, the Amish schoolhouse tragedy happened.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And the man went in and shot, I don't know how many innocent children. And the first thing the Amish did was go take food to this family, you know, and forgave him. Yeah. And I went to my grief counselor office, and I went... Damn the Amish! <laughs> How can
2: <laughs> you
1: <Yeah>. do that? <laughs> you know, I didn't understand. And he said to me, Kathy, it's not that they automatically arrived at forgiveness. No. it's that's their their faith, and so they're walking towards it. And I said, Oh, I can do that.
0: So, are you are you I saying guess. that you're walking towards? You 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 have this journey towards forgiveness.
1: Yeah, but I don't think it's a destination. You know, I think, I, I mean, I know that there are days when, and I have deep compassion for, for Eric's mother, for Eric when he was a child. I believe that he was abused by his father. I think that, you know, here's, here's this child that grew up angry and I think there were drugs involved and, you know, it had nothing to do with my daughter. It had everything to do with his pain. And so I can forgive that, but then you know, like right now it's Christmas time, and you know, I my daughter wanted to have four boys. <laughs> my arms ache to hold those babies, you know. And so I think on um, some days I could forgive, but some days I can't. So I think mm. it's it's a journey. So I walk towards it, and um, and I think Sister Helen was so great in helping me. She she said there are two arms to the cross (laughs) jesus asks us to stretch now i grew up as a christian scientist and so i i really love the teachings of jesus i don't think i don't think jesus was god i'm a unitarian not a trinitarian so therefore i don't think he was god but he was the son of god and i and his teachings are you know you can't argue with them Mm. so so that's what i've done is to try and stretch Mm-hmm. And to remember that, as a universalist, if there is a heaven, I believe that everyone will go there,
0: mm-hmm. yep.
1: including Eric.
0: Hockwell. Okay. Well, the, okay. So let me let me bring this down to a sort of a meat and potatoes reality, which I'm not even sure why I said that, but I hopefully you understand what I'm saying. Um, sure. So whatever town you're living in now, Chattanooga so let's say you're walking down the street you know this you know where i'm going with this you know go around the corner boom there's eric you're face to face for whatever reason he's out and and you're face to face with him imagining that scenario what what happens inside of you
1: i guess i'd be scared at first because i i have the opportunity part of our plea agreement is that he agreed to sit down with me with a uh, facilitated victim-offender dialogue, and I haven't done it yet. I mean, I I'm still f- afraid to face him. So, I, first of all, I would be afraid, That's but there's not a whole lot, you know, left for me to. I mean, I'm pretty bold, so then I would say, why? What happened? Because what I want to know is, you know, Leslie, did she did she she got up out of her bed? He went in. She was the first victim he stabbed her and they said a fatal wound in her back but somehow she got out of bed and went into adrian's room and that's where she died did she go in there to help adrian was her last act an act of courage i mean i don't know i guess i'd want to know that if you could even answer it but um but i don't think about that a whole lot i i spend a lot of time you know having compassion for in chattanooga you know there's been an awful lot of I've been here three and a half years and every year there are 40 or more uh, young people killed by gangs and the first summer I was here there was a funeral on the first on Leslie's birthday and so I decided in honor of Leslie I would go and so I started showing up at the funerals because that was such a powerful thing for me when I saw all the people that came people I didn't know, people who loved Leslie, you know, and so I just weren't, and, and ultimately I became a police chaplain. So it's really been, I think, back to what I read in The Sunflower, Susanna Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Heschel's daughter, when she responded in The Sunflower, should should he have forgiven um, the Nazi she, her father wrote, The Blood of the Innocent Cries Forever. And she said that, should that blood cease to cry, humanity will cease to be. But maybe the issue isn't forgiveness, but rather how the victims and their descendants can live without bitterness or vengeance, without losing their own humanity. And I think that's, I guess that's been my journey. And if if that opportunity happens and I get to meet Eric, um, I think it would be very... I think it'd be unlikely that I wouldn't feel sad for him or have compassion. Forgiveness, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know what that word means. Mm-hmm. I think it's a destination. It's not a destination. It's a journey in that every day I get up and I choose life and I say, okay, today I'm going to choose life and not be bitter. And it's hard. I mean, it's still... I was really... Um, really informed by um, one quote from Anthony DeMello and he he tells the story of a woman who went to the master to get help to overcome her grief from the death of her child and the master said to her I cannot wipe away your tears I can only teach you to make them holy and I guess that's really what I've been doing in, in Leslie's honor um, every day you know i have the day and she doesn't so a friend of mine wrote a poem and her and every every section began with what does love do now and i guess that's really been my life kind of as a prayer what does love do now and
0: so i like that that a lot. lot um kathy i i don't know i i guess from a from a parental point of view You know, I I have said this so many times on my show that I have this sort of uh, arrangement with, if there is a God, this is my arrangement with a God that I'm not sure exists. And here's the arrangement. (laughs) The arrangement is, okay, fine. Bad stuff happens to good people. I get that. But I'm telling you right now, if something bad goes down to my kids, then I'm done. I, I'm slipping into some sort of atheistic nihilism. I'm done. How Did you get close to that edge at all? I, well, I did.
1: You know what happened to me? I was doing um, street retreats in the tenderloin of San Francisco and winding up in St. Boniface Church, this amazing Catholic church where they let the homeless people sleep on the pews. And this particular week was Holy Week, and it was it was the... Holy Week after Leslie died, so it was just a few months, and I found myself in St. Boniface on Good Friday, having never experienced a um, Good Friday service. The Stations of the Cross. I was, I was in tears through the whole thing, and when and what I realized for me what the what the resurrection means, the cross, as we went around the Stations of the Cross, and you get to the place. Where Mary's holding her dead kid, you know. I was really jealous of Mary, you know, because her dead kid got to be God, <laughs> yeah. and there was no meaning <laughs> in my daughter's death. I, you know, that was that's been the hardest part is to make meaning. But, but for me, she's there, and that's halfway through it, you know. And she's holding her dead child, and at that point, she had to make a choice, and I did too. And it was like, I could, you know, stay in bed. I could get drunk every day. I could do whatever it takes to be angry and bitter and hate life. Or I could do what Mary did, and that is to choose life. And I think that's what she did. And that's, to me, what the resurrection is about. It's not that that a dead person got up and walked. It's that the people that loved him got up, chose life, and said, this is, they made meaning. If Sister Helen Prejean said to me, and, and I would say this to you, if your a, a child God forbid, someone you love is murdered, she said, Kathy, Jesus, when Jesus was murdered, the disciples had to make meaning, and so they wrote the gospel. Now you need to write Leslie's Gospel. Huh. And that's essentially what I've done, and that's, to me, the meaning of the, the resurrection is choosing life every day. And, um, and you do, you will, I mean, because I can't imagine that... That you would not because otherwise you won't you can't breathe, you can't yeah. yeah can't get out of
0: bed well, kathy, you and I could chat forever um i i I want to thank you first of all, I want to tell everyone about he uh, website healing memories n a that's north america healing memories n a dot org yeah. go there and check out uh father Michael's work in the struggle for racial justice, healing of trauma due to violence, and support veterans, police officers, and first responders. Uh, Kathy, uh, who we've been speaking with, Reverend Kathy Harrington, is a Universalist parish minister serving in uh, a UU congregation in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But, Kathy, you, um, your story, I, I told you this when we spoke this week, but your story to me is crucial for us to have on the show in this holiday season because... Having grown up in the funeral business, we were never busier than Decembers. I remember my dad always busy around Christmas as a pastor. I know the grief and the darkness that people process during Christmas as a hospital chaplain who will who will be uh in the hospital on christmas uh, i I know that that it's it's a tough, tough time for a lot of people don't get me wrong, I like watching uh Bing Crosby's White Christmas and, and all the other claymation cartoons that are uh, memories of my childhood. And, you know, there's warm and fuzzies here and there, but, man, it can get dark. And that's why I needed to have you on the show. Everything you just said, even especially because it wasn't cleaned up and nice and tidy with the bow on it, everything you just said is exactly what people need to hear, just so they know they're not the only ones struggling in, down in, in the darkness sometimes. Uh, so thank you, Kathy. Really, really okay. thank you for, for sharing on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Drew. And Merry Christmas to you.
0: Thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. And uh, Thank you. I, man, I'd love to meet you someday. If I'm ever down at Chattanooga, which I don't think I... Yep. You know, why should I come Well, to...
1: I'm going to send you an email because I'm curious. I want to know about you and prayer uh, <laughs> as a chaplain.
0: Uh-oh. I know. <laughs> I know.
1: I want you to tell me how you how that feels um, when you're struggling with God and intercessory prayer. I'd just like to have that conversation.
0: (laughs) All right, we will do that. It's it's a date. Thanks, Thanks, Kathy. (laughs) Bye-bye.